Howdy peeps! Welcome to episode 9 of the Ingressive Voices podcast with your host, Wayne Ashley. I don't know about you, but this has definitely been a week. On the scale of national politics, as so many things are beginning to happen, you know, we've gotten through a government shutdown finally, but now we're on to a national emergency and having to fight about that. The president continues to make very interesting and very scary moves towards certain situations, especially regarding the national emergency, including the possibility of taking funds from our military to build a border wall. All sorts of things are going on right now. But we're going to focus on a couple of main points, especially things that you may have missed in recent weeks if you've just been paying attention to uh, President Trump and presidential level politics. So with that said, let's try to take some of all of this craziness in. If you pay any attention to Republican politics you'll know that they spend a ton of time searching high and low for voter fraud. From accusing thousands of Texas citizens of fraud simply because their journey to citizenship did not begin at birth, to the incessant verbal persecution and suspicion of black and brown communities, many GOP leaders seem hell-bent on finding a voter fraud smoking gun. We spend millions of dollars in resources each year in Republican-dominated states and legislatures and other governmental bodies seeking out voter fraud. And time after time, again, it continues to not show uh, to be a serious situation. Here and there, we may have one person that voted, you know, erroneously. Uh, Someone mistook a a particular situation and maybe they're just getting out of prison and they didn't realize that their their right to vote in a particular state has been revoked. And so they voted in the election and they just didn't know that situation or maybe they they forgot or something like that. But those are the types of situations. It's, It's one person here one person there, if there's ever any voter inconsistency or impropriety. It's the equivalent of having errors, and people make errors. But it's not a wide-scale system of fraud. But the grand irony of this behavior, of constantly searching out the voter fraud, is that the most glaring contemporary examples of election and voter fraud are coming from Republican campaign operatives. Here's more on a salacious drama out of North Carolina from Alan Blender of the New York Times. And here's a quote from the article. North Carolina officials on Thursday ordered a new contest in the 9th Congressional District after the Republican candidate, confronted by evidence that his campaign had financed an illegal voter turnout effort, called for a new election. The unanimous ruling by the five-member Board of Elections was startling, and for Republicans, an embarrassing conclusion to a case that has convulsed North Carolina since November. 
And it followed testimony that outlined how a political operative had orchestrated an absentee ballot scheme to try to sway the race in favor of Mark Harris, the Republican candidate. It is now the single undecided House contest in last year's midterms. Robert Cordell, the state board, the state's board chairman, cited the corruption, the absolute mess with the absentee ballots when he called for a new election. It was certainly a tainted election, he said. Mr. Harris had a 905-vote lead over his Democratic opponent, Dan McCready. But his success in Bladen County, Harris's success in Bladen County, where he won 61% of the absentee ballots, even though Republicans there accounted for just 19% of them, alarmed regulators. The emotional series of hearings included testimony from candidate Harris's own son, which told the elections board unequivocally that he warned his father of the very real possibility of fraud well before his decision to hire this campaign political operative. Uh, his last name is Dallas. The testimony even brought his father to tears. Thankfully, Mark Harris has done the right thing in this situation. As of today, he has agreed uh, and called for a new election. The state board has voted to make that so. And so this seat is going to be recontested. We're going to have a do-over election in the 9th Congressional District for North Carolina because of the proof of this voter fraud scheme. So what they were doing in this situation was they were going around collecting absentee ballots. So a lot of times, you know, you have voters that will, will send in for an absentee ballot and basically it's just a vote by mail situation. So they'll vote, they'll fill out their information for themselves, they'll certify and testify that it is them that has filled out the information and they'll mail it back in. And that's how they get their, their vote. So in this case, you had a team of people that were going around to neighborhoods of people that had already requested absentee ballots. They were picking up those ballots and they were altering those ballots and saying, hey, I'll, I'll turn that in for you. And so they would, they would go to somebody's house, they'd take the ballot, and if the ballot was, say, you know, voted for the Democrat, for example, they would simply go in, change the vote, and then mail off the ballot themselves. It was a scheme of mail-in ballots that allowed them to do this and to actually change votes that favored the Republican. They're on, uh, on record in their testimony saying that they were specifically changing the votes to favor the Republicans. This is the smoking gun, folks. This is what Republicans accuse Democrats and minority communities of doing all the time. It's like, oh, they couldn't have possibly, they couldn't possibly have won on their own volition. They're changing the votes. They're always changing the votes. This is what they are always looking for. But guess what? The Republicans are finding voter fraud finally in their own backyard. So now we have a serious 
documented case of voter fraud, one of the first in the country in, in years at this, at this level and at this blatancy. And it is now in the hands of the Republican Party. Of course, this is an isolated incident. We would never want to uh, suggest that Republicans across the country are doing this. But I do find it ironic that for all of the accusations that the Republican Party gives towards Democrats and minority communities, the first place that a real case of voter fraud shows up happens to be at Republican hands. So that's the story in North Carolina. Now, how that's related to Texas is the fact that, as you know, if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, our Secretary of State, David Whitley, is under fire right now for a scheme that he tried to pull in conjunction with Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, where you got a list of 95,000 names of suspect voters, or however you want to classify them, basically people that were registered to vote and were not U.S. citizens. At first, that sounds big and scary, but in reality, what's going on is that they may be persons that are, say, you know, uh, in, in transition or they're becoming U.S. citizens. It takes a long time to become a citizen. You have to do lots of incredible things, uh, much more so than a lot of us that were native-born Americans may be able to accomplish, including the citizenship test. And so in the midst of doing all those things, they don't happen immediately. You may have uh, gotten your green card and applied for a driver's license and as part of the applying for the Texas driver's license, you may have filled out a voter registration card because that's what everybody does. Uh, you know, when they when they go, you know, get a driver's license, they may fill out. They have the option to register to vote at that time. And so you may have done those two things together. And at the time you did it, you may not have been a U.S. citizen. But then a month goes by and you're able to be a citizen or whatever the time frame is then you are legal. You are registered to vote. It turns out, if you missed the episode on that podcast, it turns out that that's what was going on with that big list. That list of 95,000 names, all these scary suspect people that, that are just out there voting in all these elections, you know, across the state of Texas, and they can't, they don't have the right to do it. They don't have the ability to do it. It turns out that the Texas Secretary of State had to remove tons and tons of names from the second that they sent that list out to counties as an advisory and say, you know, please consider knocking these people off of the list. Then they had to immediately turn tail after people, after, you know, organizations cried foul and said, well, well what do you mean? What do you mean that uh, this list of all these people is on here? They immediately turned tail as soon as objections came up and said, oh, well, um, that whole list of 95,000 names, maybe it's more like half of that list, or maybe a third of that list. We're, we're really not sure. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get back to you. And that is what Texas Secretary of State nominee David Whitley is dealing with right now. If we think that he's going to get through the Texas Senate, 
he's probably got another thing coming because there should hopefully be some Republicans out there that can see the error in this uh, in terms of a Senate confirmation. So that is an ongoing process, and we will know about that very soon because he's been uh, up in Austin testifying already for that possible Senate confirmation. But we'll find out. And somewhat related to the drama going on with the Texas Secretary of State's office, we also have plenty of drama, surprise, with Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. But in this instance, it's another member of the Paxton family that is causing issues across the state. Here's the story from Emma Platoff of the Texas Tribune. In what State Senator Angela Paxton describes as an effort to safely expand Texas's burgeoning financial tech industry, the freshman Republican from McKinney has filed a bill that would empower the office of her husband, Attorney General Ken Paxton, to exempt entrepreneurs from certain state regulations so they can market innovative financial products or services. One of those exemptions would be working as an investment advisor without registering with the state board. Currently, doing so is a felony in Texas, one for which Ken Paxton was issued a civil penalty in 2014 and criminally charged in 2015. Senate Bill 860, filed last Friday, would create within the Attorney General's office a new program, what the bill calls a regulatory sandbox that would allow approved individuals limited access to market without being obtaining without obtaining a license, registration, or other regulatory authorization. The bill, based on a 2018 Arizona law, hailed as the first of its kind, aims to cut red tape for the growing financial tech sector, allowing businesses to market new products for up to two years and to as many as 10,000 customers without, with scant regulation. In doing so, the bill would grant broad powers to the Attorney General's Consumer Protection Division, allowing it to accept or reject entrepreneurial applicants who seek to hawk innovative products outside of the state's current standards and regulations. So that's a quote from the Texas Tribune article. Thanks to Emma Platoff for great reporting on this. But let's just get this clear here. This is State Senator Angela Paxton, who was just, you know, elected. You know, she, she does uh, reside in the Texas State Senate. Uh, but the bill would directly affect her household and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, whom, as you remember, has been indicted on these very same securities uh, situations. And that was a big situation for him, even though he's continued to get reelected, unfortunately. But he was indicted on these very same issues. So for his wife... Angela Paxton to have the audacity to introduce a bill in the Texas State Senate to basically absolve her husband of any wrongdoing, 
will not only absolve him of wrongdoing, but also to have a massive power grab for the state attorney general's office. For her to be able to do that so brazenly in the Texas state legislature is alarming to folks. This, this violates so many ethics laws one couldn't even imagine. I mean, this, this folks, is on Trump level of ethics in the state of Texas. So, so this is a Republican senator, state senator that is on the level of Donald Trump in terms of ethics law violations. But the bill has been introduced. Obviously, state senators can file any bills that they want. And now it's up to the state legislature to police and say, absolutely, we're not going to hear this bill. And of course, we know that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is the person over the Texas State Senate. So it's a real possibility that he may want to entertain this bill by State Senator Angela Paxton. It's just, it's just unfathomable that we could be considering this. But even outside of the massive ethics flaws that are going on here, let's also remember that this bill would present an incredible power grab to the Texas State Attorney General's office. It would mean that the Attorney General's office essentially becomes the number one consumer enforcer in the state. It would basically nullify any other consumer protections that we have via the state board that has to regulate these things or other regulatory measures. It would supersede any regulatory measures that are being offered by, you know, municipalities, by counties, and the attorney general could just wave his pen and say, oh, nope, we're going to allow this in, in your area. We're going to allow this in this area. And that could be devastating to citizens in the community. To say that you can you can have customers for up to 10,000 people and there's no regulation, there's no safety safety regulations put in place, there's no uh, possible regulations put in place for anybody. As we all know, if you're selling a product to that many people, it's it could very well not affect just them, but it could affect everyone else. What if you're selling a car part or something like that and 10,000 people in the Houston area decide to try it out and then the, those car, car parts are faulty, right? That's going to affect a whole lot more than 10,000 people if those cars start crashing all across the city. So we can't possibly think that this bill would be entertained in the Texas State Senate. But unfortunately, we may have to think that because we may not have a choice. So it's been filed in the legislature. And what we have to do as Texas citizens is we have to speak up, speak out, and we have to call out the improprieties immediately so that State Senator Paxton does not get what she wants in this case. This bill needs to die in the Texas Senate. It does not need to have hearings. It does not to need to be entertained. And we should be sending a clear message to State Senator Paxton that Texans refuse to play games like this. And we refuse to play fast and loose with our ethics on this situation. Elsewhere under the Pink Dome, 
we are finally hearing some very interesting plans from Texas House Democrats. So this is a collection of Texas Democrats in the state legislature, uh, in the state house to be specific, and they have actually come up with a, a pretty aggressive plan to address school funding and property tax relief. And so the Texas House Democratic Caucus has gotten together to lay out these plans. Here's more on that from Aaliyah Swaby, also of the Texas Tribune. The Texas House Democratic Caucus laid out a $14.5 billion plan for school finance reform, reform and property tax relief Thursday, releasing a list of priorities in advance of a key school finance bill Republican education leaders are expected to file and support. The Democrats' plan is composed of dozens of bills members have filed or will file to increase teacher pay and benefits, pay schools more for educating low-income students, and provide more counselors for school districts. It does not include two policy items that may be included in Republican-filed legislation, merit pay for teachers, or paying schools more for higher student test scores. We hope to work with our colleagues to incorporate some of these ideas into their bills, said State Representative Chris Turner, Democrat of Grand Prairie, who chairs the caucus. The rollout by Democrats was met with pushback by some House leaders. House Speaker Dennis Bonin, Republican of Angleton, told reporters in Austin Thursday afternoon that a reason school finance reform, reform hasn't happened in past legislative sessions is because partisan politics can get in the way. Bonin said he is working with State Rep. Dan Huberty, a Houston Republican who chairs the House Public Education Committee, to prevent that from happening this session. I appreciate our Democrat members who laid out their plan this morning, Bonin said. But we've already visited with several of them and have said we're going to do this as the Texas House. The best plan is the plan that works for Texas. So there you have it, some interesting uh, politics at play here. Uh, as you as you have, you know, at the beginning of the legislative session, everything was about, you know, trying to stay unified, right? Uh, you know, of course, Texas is still fully dominated by Republicans. You know, Speaker Dennis Bonin, of course, a Republican with the t state house. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a Republican with the state Senate. And of course, Republican Governor Greg Abbott. But now, after the 2018 elections, and Democrats saw a 12-person gain in the Texas State House, they are showing themselves to be a part of the conversation. No more are Democrats having to kowtow at every point and turn to Republicans and beg Republican co-sponsors to carry any of the legislation that they want forth. The Democratic caucus is basically out here to say, look, we have priorities too. They may fall on deaf ears in the legislature, but we're going to start talking about them. See, yes, 
it would be great for Democrats to get everything that they want in their particular bills, right? So that we can avoid any, any you know, discussion of test scores and, and things like that. But this is more of a signal to potential voters coming up in the next election cycle. Democrats at the state house under the pink dome want to be visible. They want voters to know that we are here and we have alternatives to what the Republicans are going to give. And if you elect us into the majority, we can make our priorities come true. See, it's really more of a threat to people like, I guess you, you have to say, uh, you know, uh, Speaker Bonin at this point, because obviously if Democrats take the majority, there's no guarantee that he would continue to be Speaker. It's probably unlikely in that case. Um, but then to Republicans as a whole, Democrats are saying, look, we've got the mojo here. We're heading into 2020, you know, after a very hard fought 2018 election. And I, I don't think we stress this enough in the state of Texas is that, you know, the House, uh, you know, is firmly in Republican control. But we have to say that a lot of those seats were won by razor thin margins. You've got, you know, seats that were won in Austin by in, in Houston area by 50 votes. 60 votes, 40 votes, you know, these are districts that are ready and listening to Democrats and able to flip over at any moment's notice if Republicans don't get something done. So I appreciate the Texas House District Democratic Caucus for getting out in front of the cameras and being visible. That's awesome. We really need more of that in this legislative session. And here's the thing. We need more of it on a broader set of issues. Where are the Democrats that are out there pushing and prodding for Medicaid expansion? Is it one of the governor's main priorities? No. Is it one of Speaker Bonnie's, Bonin's main priorities? Absolutely not. Dan Patrick, you already know the answer to that, right? But for Democrats, this is a life and death situation. The fact that the state of Texas has not expanded Medicaid and the fact that Republicans refuse to even consider expanding Medicaid because they don't want to hurt themselves politically. This should be the very thing that hurts them politically. The fact that they continue to ignore the, the sickest and the neediest persons in our state, persons that are disabled, that could benefit from the Medicaid expansion. It could be life or death to so many, to millions, over a million Texans, not millions, but over a million Texans could qualify for this Medicaid expansion, and they need it now. As we discussed in episode eight of the Ingressive Voices podcast, you know, unfortunately, the way that the state legislature, uh, the state uh, constitution is set up, we don't have a way to petition for these things directly like certain other states do, right? In 2018, Nebraska and Idaho and Utah uh, were able to 
usurp their Republican-dominated legislatures and go directly to the people. They were able to file petitions, get thousands of signatures, and then place Medicaid expansion directly on the state ballot, where it won indecisive majorities that Republicans in those states could not ignore. But unfortunately for the Texas Constitution, that's not a possibility. But what is a possibility right now is for Democrats to be yelling from the rooftops. They should be insisting. And yes, there is, there is a hesitancy because, you know, everybody wants to make sure that school finance gets done. You know, you know, nobody can fault them for that, but they need to be watching the time clock because it's notorious in Austin when we have these biennial legislative sessions that people are trying to run out the clock. And so Democrats need to be working behind the scenes and they need to be saying, well, okay, when are we going to get, you know, school finance moving? Because I have other things, other priorities that I need to speak about. The bill to expand Medicaid, you know, if it hasn't been filed yet, and I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't checked to see if that particular bill has been filed uh, by anyone or any combination of, uh, you know, uh, representatives. I will check on that and have an update soon. But those bills need to be coming in. They need to be filed and they need to be a part of the conversation. And it needs to happen now because the legislative session, the time will tick away and it will be May before we know it. And so, yes, school finance is a priority. It's something that has to get done. But it's good to see Texas Democrats playing a little bit of politics here, and they need to go to the next level as soon as possible, because that's what the Republicans would do in their situation. They're going to play politics until the cows come home, right? Democrats have to be able to do this too. Medicaid expansion is the number one issue for the state of Texas. Listen, I know people out there are like, oh, what do you mean? Da, 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 da. Listen, you have citizens across the state of Texas, like we said, over 1 million of them that are in such desperate need for health care, you know, relief from healthcare expenses that are mounting and for healthcare coverage plans. They're so in such desperate need to keep their hospitals open. This is an issue that resonates with all of us across the state, whether you're in rural communities or urban communities, suburban communities, exurban communities. This is something that all Texans have to understand is needed. And Democrats, it is the issue that they can carry throughout this legislature. And hey, best case scenario is the Republicans go, okay, we can't ignore this anymore. Let's get it passed. And then everybody can be happy about that. But if they refuse, it's issue number one going into the 2020 election cycle so that people know that in 2021... At the next legislative session, a democratically controlled House would be sending those bills over to the Senate. They would be sending over the bill to expand Medicaid and do it now. Now for today's Make Room segment. 
we're going to talk diversity. So no big plan segment uh, for today, but we're just going to discuss a little bit of uh, some reflections on, you know, the diversity of this country and the diversity of our lives, you know, where we're going as a country. Um, in this Black History Month, it's something that we just want to take a moment and make some room on. So on diversity and on celebrating our own diversity, let's make some room. As you probably know, February is Black History Month across the United States of America. So even in parts of the country that may not necessarily celebrate it or want to do so, uh, they at least have to acknowledge that, that February is going to be a month where they are confronted with a lot of great contributions from the African-American community and from wonderful people uh, throughout African-American history. But essentially, the point of celebrating something like Black History Month is to remind us all that black history is American history. That the African-American experience, the African-American community, and the achievements that we have benefited from from African-Americans are part of our history. They are part of the great, incredible American story. Even in 2019, you know, where we have, you know, computer power at our fingertips uh, and in a lot of ways that can be a, a negative thing because it causes us to be very lonely and sometimes not interact with people in just a, in, a, in an actual physical space as much. But even in 2019, it still means something to acknowledge our diversity and uplift each other as diverse beings. It really does. Black History Month, yes, it's a space on a calendar, but I can say, you know, as an African-American, that it really does mean something to me to know that the traditions of, you know, my culture are uplifted and celebrated during the month of February. It does mean something because it means that I, as a person and part of my heritage, is recognized as an important and positive thing in this country. You know, we get faced with so many negative images of persons day by day, especially for African Americans and Latino Americans, you see a lot of the negative images on television of, of people doing, you know, wrong things because that's how the media always skews those communities, you know. But then you get to a point like Black History Month where we, we take a little bit of a pause on all of that and we say, okay, well, here's some positive things that have happened thanks to the black community. Just a year ago, as many people know, we were all enthralled by uh, the magnificence that was the Black Panther film uh, to see that historic film get this big Hollywood budget and to see how incredible those actors carried forward that responsibility. Right. Uh, it is so important to uplift that diversity and to be able to strive and create great things. 
So be it February for Black History Month or May for Asian American and Pacific American Heritage Month. So that's coming up from from September 15th to October 15th. We celebrate the contributions of Hispanic and Latino Americans, right? And even though there's not an official month for, you know, Middle Eastern Americans in the United States, at least not yet, you know, many states like California celebrate the contributions of Middle Eastern and Arab Americans in, uh, I believe it's the month of August. I'll have to double check that, but uh, it's not an official you know, nationwide celebration yet, but even so, it's so important for us to be able to take those times to create those spaces. Hello, buzzword, aggressive voices, right? Uh, to create those spaces to say, we see you as a nation, we recognize you, and not only do we see you, but we are thankful for your community and for the contributions that you have given us all. That is what makes us the United States of America, is the diversity that this nation has always had and the ingression that this nation has always been able to create. There's room for everyone here. And hearing stories about how, you know, the current administration is, is metering people at our border as though there's not any room, there's not even enough room for them to come in the country to wait their court case as they're fleeing violence and terror. It's just, it, it's not who we are as Americans. It's not the diversity that we celebrate. It's not the nation that is one of the richest nations in the, in the history of the world that you're saying we couldn't, we couldn't provide to help somebody fleeing incessant violence from their home country. It's, it's not who America is. But what is certain? We can't control what other people do, and we can't control the the fear that they will spread and the hate that they engender, right? And we certainly can't control every aspect of those situations from, you know, a president or a Congress that continues to ignore all of the situations going on. We can't control that. The hate is going gonna, is gonna to happen. The fear is going to be stoked. But what we can do is combat that fear. We can combat that hate. We can combat that mistrust by saying, well, that's what you believe, but this is what I believe. This is what I know. I know that I don't have to be afraid of other people all the time. I can celebrate something like Black History Month in February and say, well, here are some positive things that have come from the African-American community. And we can celebrate those and we can create knowledge around those situations and say, but, but this is the reality as well. It's not just the narrative that a couple of people tell, but this is the true narrative of this wonderful, vibrant community. So even in 2019, 
those situations where we we take time to discuss our diversity and promote and uplift our diversity in this country is so important. And amazingly enough, I think now it means more to me than it ever has that as a nation, we still do that. So I'm proud to celebrate Black History Month in this February, and I'll be proud to celebrate Asian American and Pacific American Heritage Month in the month of May. Also proud to go to the rodeo parade, by the way, and celebrate some Western heritage here uh, in Houston as we uh, end February and go into March and, and have our wonderful rodeo. That's diversity as well. But we, we have to be able to do that. We have to be able to lift each other up and see the humanity in each other. It's our only hope to be able to make this national experiment continue on and be as wonderful and successful as we know America can be. And that's it. So we've made some room on diversity, and that also brings us to the conclusion of Episode 9 of the Ingressive Voices podcast. I would love to hear your feedback, so please keep that feedback coming. Uh, it's going to be at, at ingressivevoices at gmail.com, so you're welcome to reach out to me via email anytime. Uh, also, Ingressive Voices is now on Twitter, so you can find the Twitter handle at Ingressive Voices, which is, the voices is spelled V-O-I-C-S. And so that's the Twitter handle for Ingressive Voices. Still said, and then of course, we're on Facebook, of course, uh, as well. So, so that's just going to be uh, facebook.com slash Ingressive Voices. So check it out. Uh, we're still setting up a little bit of the social media, but things are going well so far in the podcast. And thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, any ideas on some topics that you'd like uh, to cover on Ingressive Voices, please send them my way. I would love to hear your feedback. And that's it, peeps. Thanks so much for taking in this episode of Ingressive Voices. Until next time, I'm Wayne Ashley.